Thank you, everyone, who has been supporting the podcast by subscribing, giving a five-star rating, and writing glowing reviews, sharing the podcast far and wide, and donating on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artifactpodcast. And we have amazing things planned, and you are making it possible for us to continue producing the podcast. If you haven't yet, we hope you do. But most importantly of all, thank you very much for joining us on these wild adventures into history, ideas, and existential, existential mystery. If you are a podcaster and you'd like to interview uh, Mayor Simcha or myself, uh, please get in touch. In fact, if you're anyone who'd like to get in touch, just get in touch. I'm Nachli Al-Salavan. My handle on most platforms is Museum Tours IL, and Mayor Simcha Panzer is... At Mayor Simcha. That's Simcha with an H. You can find us on... Uh, us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Parlor, or plain old website. It's just easy. Just look for the hashtag Artifact Podcast on all platforms and listen to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That's right. Welcome, Welcome. to the Artifact Podcast where we dive into the history, ideas, and existential mystery behind everyday things and... Not-so-everyday things, such as this. Mm. Yes, this is not such an everyday thing. But before we do this, I just want to say that we want to dedicate this podcast in honor of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. I'd like to say that I remember when Rav Sachs became more than a name for me, it was through meeting his daughter Jessica at Yakar in Jerusalem, a synagogue where both of us used to daven. She gave a talk on the weekly Torah portion, and in her quiet way, she made a huge impression on me as a great mind and a giant soul. Then someone mentioned to me that she's the daughter of Rav Sachs. So really, the first time Rav Sachs meant anything to me, it was through his living legacy. So Jessica and everyone in the Sachs family, if you hear this, thank you for sharing your father with us with the world, and thank you for you. There is a peculiar connection hmm. which associatively set off the whole line along which this episode is based. Mm-hmm. Rob Sachs did high school at a school called Christ College Finchley, and he went to Keyes College of Cambridge University. Okay. And Charles Darwin studied at Christ College of Cambridge University. Which to those of you who are outside of uh, Europe, you should know that there is another Cambridge, not only the one in Massachusetts. Actually, the one... (laughs) (laughs) Didn't even occur to me. Yes, that's true. Yes. So a lot of places in uh, New England, as it is, are named after... Places in... England. England. Who would have thunk? Antiquated England. Speaking of antiquated, Hmm. today's artifact is uh, this uh, fossil. This fossil is uh, an ammonite. Ammonite, like the Ammonim, the daughter, the children of Lot and his younger daughter. Do you mean the Ammonites? Uh, That's what they're called. Now you're talking about the different versions of the movie that just came out. What? Hmm? What movie? Well, there's a movie by, uh, what's her name? Kate Winslet. About Mary Anning, which is called Ammonite. I had no idea, but I will say that Ammon, not not uh, so distant from the city of Amman, the capital of Jordan, uh, is Am- Ammon and Moab. The Ammonites and the Moabites are 
in the Eastern Jordan, in uh, Jordan, in Amman, in that area. And speaking of which, this Ammonite is actually from the land of Ammon. This is from Jordan. I brought this. You see this? Yeah. This is a quarter of, uh, of an entire Ammonite, which I found when we were in Jordan in the year 2000. And it is... Uh, it's part of my collection, actually. Oh, collect 2000, that's already old. This is Jurassic. That's Jurassic, yeah? <laughs> yes. Yeah? Yeah, it's like 145 million years old. So it's relatively recent. Because yeah. the, this kind of creature actually occurs much earlier in the fossil record. Well, let's just say that, yes, it goes through. This is a very unique. Uh, ammonites are very important in terms of uh, fossils. We're, we're going to get there. Okay. We're definitely going to get there. I'm impressed there. by how large it is because you sent me a photo. So I would know what it looked like well, going I into this episode. I think that this is the photo I sent you. Uh, this one I actually bought at the Astor Gallery in, in New York. I mean, the, the smaller one here is like the size of the palm of my hand. Unlike Donald Trump, I have small hands. And this is huge? And th this one, isn't. This one, if it were complete, would be like the size of my face. Granted, or, or, it's a like, small face. Or like but... a personal pizza. There was actually another <laughs> one. Pizza, yes. There was another one that, that uh, someone else found on the tour. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a little smoother. I like this one more because it has texture to it, which uh, our camera here is having a hard time catching. I'm just going to lift this up for the Facebook Live. Um, I really have an eye for fossils. I actually collect fossils. I have been collecting fossils uh, since I remember. Uh, I must have been 10. Are there a lot of collecting. fossils in the old city? Uh, I'm not talking about the residents who've lived there forever, but I, I have an eye for fossils. Uh, we go on Tiulim, Yar Yerushalayim, anywhere, and I just, I'll spot a fossil hmm. in the middle. I'll spot an, a, a pattern, a shape, hmm. and I'll pick it up. Either fossils or just nice-looking rocks. But I have a lot of fossils that I collected as a kid. Hmm. And uh, I kept on collecting. If I see a nice fossil now, I'll still collect it. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So I, Israel is kind of famous for not having dinosaur fossils, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other kinds of fossils. No, that's because we had Shimon Peres. What? He was alive for a long time. Well... Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I'm not really so sure about about the specifics of Israel's larger fossils. I don't really know anything about uh, major fossils being found in Israel other than shells and so on. But that has to do with what Israel was in the period of time in which these things were alive. It was a submerged. It was part of the ocean and so on. It wasn't uh, overseas. It wasn't. It wasn't land. So mm -hmm. I guess you wouldn't. I don't know. That's a good point. I don't know. Yeah. That's a geology question. Geology, geography. So do you do you have more you want to say about ammonites? Yeah. So, well... Um, ammonites? Specifically, ammonites? Specifically ammonites. I mean, ammonite, we can talk about what family they're from and what creatures they relate to today, different kind of mollusks. And, well, yeah, and I thought it was right. really interesting that this shelled creature is actually more closely related to the octopus mm -hmm. than it is to other very similar-looking shelled creatures today, the, the nautilus. Mm -hmm. So the... What something might, what might come out of something eventually might look very different than other things in the future, so, which look very similar. So to this it. guy's been around for I a while. I didn't say that very well. Yeah. Well, this guy's been around for a while. And uh, let's just say we, we, can, we can take this many different directions. I think in some other podcasts we might talk about phi, the golden ratio. The golden ratio. The golden ratio, because that has to do with the structure, which also relates to sunflowers and galaxies. and I mean, this is a fun. I'm not going there. We're not going Da Vinci Code today. But, um, the most we, irrational number. Yeah, we, we, we can go there. That would be a rational thing to do. 
but uh, I'd like to talk about fossils in general. So I, I collect fossils, I love fossils, and many people have collected fossils. In fact, the ancient Greeks and the Romans collected fossils. What, what on earth were they thinking when they saw a fossil? Well, I, I don't know what they thought it was, but there is a curious picture of a dinosaur skull coming out of a dark cave on a, an amphorae, Greek terracotta vessel. One of those two-handled jugs. Yes, those big jugs which are used for, for wine and so on. And there's a picture of some woman being attacked by this head mm -hmm. of a creature. And there's somebody, like a Herculean sort of figure, trying to rescue her. With so a they, bow, he's shooting yeah, at so the So this is what they, they found these, and they mm. didn't know what they were. And they spurred all sorts of uh, stories of monsters and mythical creatures. I mean, we find these also in other cultures where they just came up with all these. They just, they just found these. I mean, the Talmud talks about these creatures. They thought these were relics from the pre-Diluvian before the flood. I mean, there's all kinds of... People didn't really know. There are sayings mm. that even Emperor Hadrian had a collection of fossils, I think. Mm. Uh, different emperors collected them because they're nice. Mm. And, and, and well, Hadrian, Hadar, the beauty of old age... Fossils are the beauty of I got, the I, I got to tell you, um, I never thought of that. Well, there you go. Well, that's, that's, that was brilliant. <laughs> but so, so we have this idea of historically of what fossils were. Now, let's say you find these fossils. Now, they're clearly creatures that look, that many of them resemble creatures which are still alive. Mm -hmm. So you're going to understand that these look like creatures, but how did they become petrified into stone? Yeah, that's the paradox. It looks like right. it should be alive, and yet it's stone. Right, and this is before they knew about uh, about Boulder, Colorado. What about Boulder, Colorado? Boulder is a kind of stone. People in Boulder, Colorado get stoned. I didn't get the connection. That's fine, but th the point is, is it that... Is a small boulder the size of a large boulder? Um, did you miss that meme? Yes, I did. Okay, we'll keep going. <laughs> I, I, I missed that meme. <laughs> okay, so, so we're going to talk about, about uh, fossils historically. So let's just say, so they thought they were nice things. They thought maybe God decorated the world with these beautiful things to make the world look nice because hmm. otherwise it's just boring mud and whatever. And it, it happens to be that, uh, that many Jewish people uh, scholars saw these and were wondering, what are these? Because some of them are clearly creatures, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Clearly animals. You find bones of different... I mean, you're in Europe. I mean, they, they found this stuff. You find a skull of a yeah, dinosaur. Yeah, so, so, so there's some really, really cool stuff. So, you know, we're going to get a little bit into the history, but let's say some known Jewish thinkers is, is Rabbi Tzviyuda Berlin, the Nitziv, right, who lived in 1817 to 1893. So we're talking not, not 200 years ago. When this stuff was coming out in a more systematic way... For right? whom... Bar Ilan University, isn't it? Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's not him. What? It's his It's his son, isn't it? Which one? Mayor Bar Ilan. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. But Torah, Madad, Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, def we'll definitely, and, we're, I mean, we're, like, we're going to have to get into Torah and science well here. It's well worth the whole theme of Abs what we're doing here. Absolutely. So his suggestion was that these are creatures that were killed during the flood when everything sort of was flooded with water and congealed and hardened. Like, that's what they sort of thought. That seems reasonable. Right, that seems reasonable. Then Now, a very interesting one. Uh, so the Malbim, Mayor Leibush, um, who also lived in Germany, another scholar. My he, favorite commentator I on love the his linguistics and oh, the way he yeah. parses things apart. I really love learning with Malbim or Malbim. Yeah. So the Malbim, <laughs> what? We have different listeners. So the, yes. the, 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 the Malbim, the Malbim in Parshat Noach says <laughs> that, uh, that the fossils are proof 
that the flood mixed everything up and turned it upside down, and they're all underground. Now, the word fossil actually comes from to dig up. That's what the word comes from. That's a right? Latin word. It's a Latin word, fossilis, uh, fo fossils. In, whereas in Lashon HaKodesh, in it, the language of the Torah, fossil comes from the word to cancel, because they're all dead. Pasal? Yeah. Pasal et harishonot, bonei olamot Oh my exactly. God, that's so funny. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, God cancels old worlds. Well, we're going to get there. That's actually related to one of the later interpretations yeah, yeah. of this. So, yeah, so, but, but in Hebrew, we just say me'uban, coming from the word even, because it's made of stone. I mean, it's petrified stone. It's minerals that sort of replace uh, the organic material and congealed. See, I didn't know that word. That's great. Yeah, me'ubanim, me'uban. Hmm. So this is made of even. Uh, I remember once uh, seeing a, 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 an old uh, Moroccan rabbi of the old city who passed away a few years ago, a lovely man, who saw me excitedly talking about a fossil, and he says to me, "Zot even avanim." It's just a rock, and don't get so thought. Don't don't, <laughs> don't don't think too much about this stuff. It's like it's just a rock. So that's kind of funny. If I were to show this rock to a Martian, do you know what he could learn from it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but they're, they're, they're actually, if I'm not mistaken, in Mars they did find um, some sort of fossil of bacteria or something. Uh, there's speculation. I saw a nice article about what it would mean to look for fossils on Mars. But do I believe that there are no confirmed fossils from Mars yet. Okay. I look forward to it. Yeah, indeed. No, they'll definitely be really, really cool. I mean, there are micro fossils. There are fossils of microbes. Uh, we talked about Precambrian stuff in Australia and the ocean, the beaches of Australia. They actually found fossils of bacteria. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Stuff from the primordial uh, soup, you know, like the, the, the from the very, very earliest organisms. Yeah, the, the, the fact that you could have a fossil of something so small that we would think of maybe as so fragile, those cells are right. actually very resilient. Or also, they're, they're fossils of algae. Like algae, yeah. really? Yeah. Like, wow. Whew. So, Rav Chaim Zelig Solominsky, who lived in 1810 to 1904, so the late 19th century, published in Hatzvira, which is a scholarly Jewish publication, in Hebrew, and Hebrew and Yiddish probably? No, probably in Hebrew, about the pterodactyl, which is a flying dinosaur. It's a dinosaur which glides. Well, not actually a dinosaur, but a cousin of dinosaurs. Okay. Uh, so he is calling it a hybrid of a scorpion and a bird. And he was basically saying, based on the, the exegetical, the midrashic explanation of that the people took mates from whatever they chose, is that even animals were influenced by the sexual impropriety and immorality of the pre-Diluvian period before the flood, where even animals were mating with species which aren't their own. Which now we know, I mean, the definition of a species is that they cannot have a bear children mm -hmm. of a mixture. So mm -hmm. that's the definition of another species. Maybe they were close enough. Maybe they're like different dog breeds and somehow they got together. Yeah, maybe like, there was... like a scorpion and a bird. Maybe genetics were a little more... Fluid. Fluid. Gender fluid. Species fluid. Genetic fluid. But the, the, the thing is that uh, this is a publication in a Jewish newspaper with a pterodactyl. It's just really cool. I think this is one of the earliest publications of such a thing. So hmm. that's really, really cool, right? So, so you have these Jewish scholars who are finding this stuff coming out of the earth, and they're trying to figure out, like, what is this? And they're trying to fit it into some sort of religious framework that will help you understand the world. Right. Mm, mm -hmm. Instead of saying this is not going to intrude into my bubble, like am I comfortable? You know, like no, I have to understand it. What is this? Do you think it was a defensive measure, like oh, we better fit this into our framework, or was it just like, well, obviously, you know, we believe what we believe. You know, everybody knows what we know, I suspect, right? And now, you know, using what we know, this is the next logical in, step. In the words of Joker, I believe. 
What I believe is that, based on seeing the type of writing from that period of time, before mm -hmm. science really hit home, is that here's another piece of data, which at this point isn't threatening, but it does have to fit in to what we already know is true, and so here's how it fits. It's giving an explanation that works it's with everything else we know about the world. Exactly, but it doesn't. it's not explaining something away. There's nothing threatening yet. There's nothing polemical about these writings. Right, there's just like, oh, these are creatures which was destroyed before the flood, and that's why they're not found anymore. But these things lived alongside which, humans. Which, by the way, is true. These were definitely creatures that were destroyed before the flood. You have a point. Then more information starts pouring in, mm. in which these beautiful ornamental rocks of creatures long gone, some resemble nothing we've seen today, takes a new form, and this is the Tiferet Yisrael. Now, the Tiferet Yisrael, in his, his interpretation on the Mishnah, says... I thought Tiferet Yisrael was before all these guys. He, yeah, but he was ahead of his time. And what he was <laughs> saying... What he was saying, I guess, wasn't known so much, wasn't paid attention mm -hmm, to. Mm -hmm. But what he said is that there is something unique about the way in which these fossils are found. And that is that they are quite organized with larger creatures below and smaller creatures on top. That's at least how he understood it, right? What, when was he writing? I, I think he was in the 1800s, because before the, this is when they were finding these things. Right, you want to look at Tiferet Yisrael? I want to look this up. Okay. So you're going to find the Tiferet Yisrael, um, that here. Tiferet. Yisrael Lipschitz. Right. 19th century Ashkenazi rabbi, so 1782 so to 1860. Yeah, so he is. He's a contemporary. More recent than I thought. I thought he was much older. No, no, he's, he's a contemporary. He's definitely a contemporary, right? Now, that's uh, amazing that he's putting together the geology and really thinking so through this. So apparently he's reading the journals. Wow. I guess. And otherwise, how do you know about this stuff? A rabbi would read such a journal. Avade. Avade. <laughs> now, this, now, here's the thing. He was saying that because we found that they're such neatly organized, he doesn't take it yet where we, where we take it. Okay. But he says this, is, this can't be... Uh, as a result of the flood, because the flood would mean that it's all mixed up. Which is actually what the word that we have for the flood mabul is mabul. Means it means all confused, right? And what you find is, is, is extreme order and neatness. And so what he says, this refers to HaKadosh Baruch Hu Borei God creates worlds and destroys them. Now, we today have a more, let's say, sophisticated view of that concept in the sense of potential universes which don't work themselves out, and we have the one that works out, or something like In other words, the oh, planet oh, is not the world. That's an understanding of that, of that saying from Chazal that we have. I, I, don't know I, if that, I don't know if that's widespread. No, that's fine. But the point is that our planet is not the world. Okay, but hold on. Beam this out to all of our listeners. Say yes. that perush of that mamar chazal. So what we're saying, I mean, without getting into too many details, the point is that God created many worlds and destroyed them. And what do we mean when we say that God created other worlds and where they were destroyed? So simplistic meaning of that would be there were other civilizations behind us here on this planet. That That is the world, olam, world. And they were destroyed, and now we have new ones, which is true. I mean, there were civilizations. There's dead ends yeah. in evolution. Galobi, There's dead ends in society. Tepe, There's, and, right? Yeah. Right. Whether it's in society or it's in the history of this planet, right? The dinosaurs, dinosaurs. came to an end. They, right? they lasted for a long time. Right. But is that the world? 
that's a very local version. The dinosaur of the world. veld. But then the Torah talks to the worlds. Mm-hmm. To the, talks to talks to us locally. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, and like that's the world. I mean, even the concept of a deluge of a flood isn't the entire planet. It's probably a certain area of Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a plausible explanation. Mm-hmm. Chazal even tell us that the flood didn't reach Eretz Israel. The Chinese also have a very powerful flood myth, which is we'll talk about it another time. We'll okay, pl- we'll plug it in but, later. Oh, we don't have to. Wait, there's a pun there. Yes, pull the plug. Oh gosh, oof! That was several degrees removed. Sorry, is this draining you? <laughs> oh, I just don't want to get caught in a vortex of punnery. Um, haha, vortex? I got it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I'm letting this one die out so we can create a new world. Okay, as so, all the villains so say. Now that we've gotten out the local interpretation of this, Mamar Chazal, give us the. So, a updated. broader interpretation is that this universe, as we know today, with its basic values which enable it to work, which are tweaked exactly perfectly, we used to say what was called the anthropic principle, which is the universe is designed for humanity, right? It's like everything is so perfect. It's like the Goldilocks rule everything is just right. Mm-hmm. But then you say, wait a minute, what if it weren't just right? Well, we wouldn't be here to talk about it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't rule out the possibility of such universes existing. It just means that we wouldn't be there to talk about them because they're not suitable for us. Mm-hmm. And so there could be an infinite amount of universes which existed, but since they don't support life, there is no intelligent life or consciousness of which to d- to talk about. So they wind up not mattering. Right. And, and that's the sense in which Literally we and metaphorically. Right. There's just many worlds which they... aren't sustainable in the sense where if it wasn't for the Torah, the world wouldn't be here. In other words, there's a goal, a purpose, meaning to this life. Mm-hmm. And if it isn't met, then it doesn't matter. It's as if it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It ran through a simulation. I mean, who cares? It's, it's, it's irrelevant at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're an atheist podcast, we would love to come on and talk about teleology and all the nasty things that we just said that you probably hate. Or if you're Dr. Strange, you can go and talk about Dramamu or all those other alternative universes. And the mirror dimension, you're not following with uh, Dr. Strange, are you? No. That's too bad. Okay. So the the third Israel, what he basically points out is that this must be that there were previous universes. This is not a result of the flood. And this is really where the modern understanding of fossils comes in. Let's go back to what are fossils. Mm -hmm. So the Greeks, the Romans, other cultures, Victorian England. I mean, people are finding this stuff and they're collecting this. There's noble societies of... People are collecting this stuff Mm -hmm. and they're showing Mm -hmm. off the nice stuff. There are big collections of fossils. Right. They collect fossils and nice rocks and trinkets and stuff. But there was one person who put it all together and recognized that this actually has a methodology to it which relates to the history of the world. And that man's name is William Smith. And there's a beautiful book, which I just recently read, which is called The Map That Changed the World by uh, Simon Winchester. And Mm. The Map That Changed the World is a very nice personal biography of William Smith, who was a late 18th, early 19th century canal digger of, of low social status, who had a very, very difficult life. He was in jail for this and for that. He got into debt and he was never recognized and all that stuff. But this man who worked in canals and draining out uh, coal mines, hmm. uh, worked, wow. traveled England for about 20 years, hmm. drawing and, and he, drawing, sketching and studying. And he basically understood because he understood the terrain that there's these different strata 
of different types of shale, different types of rock, which miners knew this stuff, mm -hmm. right? And they had names for the different strata. Mm. And you realize that the fossils enclosed within them have a consistency in which these particular ones from this strata do not show up in the other one. And he was able to project in three dimensions what England looked like in terms of its strata. And he made the first geological map. William Smith is basically the is the father of modern geology. Did he connect those different strata to different times as well? Yes. Hmm. I don't know if he was able to date them in terms of millions of years, but he was clear that they are that they have a certain succession, and there's a methodology and a consistency to them. Hmm. And he drew a 3D colorful map of England. Hmm. Wow. It's the history of the Earth. This is the history of the Earth. And it was published in 1815, but it took a long time until it was recognized. So this is happening more or less at the time that these conversations, the Malbim, Nitziv, mm -hmm. Israel, this is the period of time in which these ideas are congealing. Are coming into being. And Darwin was mm -hmm. 1850. Yeah. So Charles Darwin sort of comes in at the right time to put together these ideas because you start seeing that there's a consistency mm -hmm. of forms and then you start seeing, okay, but let's see these slight modifications as with the assumption that the higher up is the younger, mm -hmm. right? Which is mm -hmm. also true in terms of archeological layers, but that's another subject, but it took a while to figure that out. It wasn't obvious that when you start digging down on a site, the, the upper layer is so you're the going lower. backwards in time when you dig right. down. But then you have tectonic plates moving and you have certain parks so where the lower a levels sort of jump out and you can see the lower levels up. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of these cool things. And the more you excavate, the more you dig, mm -hmm. the more you find patterns and consistencies between this particular layer, which has a particular, let's say, fingerprint, and you find that consistently around the globe. Charles Darwin is, is happening in the background of these ideas becoming public knowledge more and more and more. So it's setting the stage for him. Darwin puts it together partially through domesticated animals, eventually Gregor Mendel, the, uh, the, the peas, the, the priest, the monastery. He puts together that, eventually his experiments come back into the current of intellectual speculation right. and the development of the theory. but. This geological piece is something that I, I wasn't aware of that being well, a major influence on Darwin. Well, so there's fossils mm -hmm. and then there's the genetics. Mm -hmm. Now, what a beautiful thing, right. I mean, I was going to get into this a little bit later, but I'm going to mention a beautiful book by Richard Dawkins called The Greatest Show on Earth. And he has a whole expose of how to understand deriving the history of the world as a crime scene. But what he basically points out, this mm. very opening, is that Fossils are cute and they're nice. You don't need them to prove evolution at this point. Ah, okay. It's nice to have, mm -hmm. but you don't need it, mm -hmm. right? In other words, evolution isn't really based on fossils. It's based on watching life and how it behaves, mm -hmm. right? A common misconception about evolution is that, well, that doesn't explain how life came about and it's very straightforward. It doesn't intend to. It's simply saying life as a fact, as a given, this is how it behaves. Yeah. Right. And Darwin actually didn't call it evolution. He called it descent with modification. Mm -hmm. right? We have common descent and we are slightly modified as we go along. He sort of predicted the mechanisms for it, but he didn't even know about the genome yet. Yeah, he yeah. just predicted because he observed how it behaves. Schrodinger did that. Schrodinger did that? Sch Schrodinger predicted that in his book, What is Life? He predicted that his idea was, okay, if you're going to have descent with modification, then you must have transmission of information. What mode would allow enough stability for transmission of information, but also allow for modification? And his idea was a semi-periodic crystalline structure. 
That is so cool because right. so, so Richard he Dawkins, predicts DNA from first principles. So, so Richard, that is so cool. I did not know that because yeah. Richard Dawkins has a few other books. I'm trying to remember if it is in the Blind Watchmaker. Yes, it's in the Blind Watchmaker, which is I think from the 70s, where he talks about crystalline structures mm -hmm. as being something which can replicate itself mm -hmm. and gradually he's theorizing how we came about to what would eventually become a self-replicating cell. And crystalline structures. Yeah, th this is an active area of debate today because, you know, Darwin's talking essentially about well, once you already have life, how will it develop? But the problem of going from not life to life. It's crystal is... methodology. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a big active area yeah, of debate. How, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how, how on earth would this work? And I mean, to me, one of the biggest surprises about life on earth is that all of the evidence that we have points toward just one point of origination, or at least only one point of origination that survived. It's possible that there were multiple starts to life, but only one of them seems to have made it. If you okay. look at the development of going from sea to land, okay, it looks like that happened several times in the course of evolutionary history. You know, it's very interesting. But turtles. But the the development of life itself, right? It seems that we all have a common ancestor, but yes. that's not to be taken for granted. Correct. In other words, if the, you know what? I'm going to drop turtles. The beautiful thing about turtles is that is that you can tell from their biology is that they've been, they've be evolved into land creatures from sea creatures, and then back into sea creatures and yeah. back into land. That's yeah. really cool. And I don't remember yeah. if Richard Dawkins or Stephen Jay Gould talk about that, but it's a really cool point. But one of the things Dawkins brings out here. But mm -hmm. he also talks about that in uh, Shattering the Rainbow, maybe, I don't know, one of his older books. He's a biologist, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we all have the same DNA with the basic four building blocks. Yeah. That is proof that we all share something in common. Mm -hmm. You can track how often changes happen in your DNA, mm -hmm. and you can basically project backwards how long ago two distinct species had the same DNA because mm -hmm. each one changed at a particular pace. You can put in a pea and a cow and there's websites that will calculate these things for you. Yeah. You can do it. The next book I really want to mention by Neil Shubin, he wrote a book called Your Inner Fish. Ah, yes, go on. Neil Shubin, he was one of the co-finders, mm -hmm. uh, discoverers of a very particular fossil, a very unique fossil known as a transitional form. Mm -hmm. They called it based on some native, I think, Canadian tribal name. It's a cool. There's a cool story behind the name. They called it Tiktaalik. Tiktaalik. T i k t a a l i k. Tiktaalik. The Tiktaalik is a sea creature that it has fins and feet, and it has hmm. several features which indicate that it is a transition between a creature which lives in the ocean and which lives on land. It's a, the transition. Wait now, hold on. If you have a creature who has fins and feet. To be kosher, does it have to have fins and scales and cloven hooves? Or is it sufficient to qualify just as a fish or just as a mammal? A very theoretical question. First of all, it's amphibian. It's a very theoretical, which means it's not kosher, because uh, it has feet, but it, it needs to have fins and scales. But in addition to that, there were no humans around. I know that. You're saying if you were a time traveler. Hypothetically, listen. If you were a time traveler. If another fish crawled out of the sea today, could it happen again? Or are things sort of locked into place now? That's like a theoretical evolutionary question. There are 
creatures which were thought to have been extinct and were suddenly found, they just somehow survived. I don't think this thing, the, the environment allows for it to survive. It's from the Devonian period. We're talking about over 250 million years. But the cool thing about this, where it relates to the map that changed the world and William Smith and stratigraphy, is the way they found it. Hmm. They made a prediction based on Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and the stratigraphy which was basically founded on the ideas of William Smith, but basically modern geology. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, if we know at what period in time you had that transition took place, you will, and you know where those strata are, that's where you're going to So be. then in strata X, we should find the transitional form and they, between these It took these like organ four organisms. years and they were running out of funds and they didn't find it. And something like on the last day or something, they <laughs> wow. stumbled upon it as a crazy, it's a crazy story. Wow. So they found it. Hmm. They found Tiktaalik. Now this was used in a court case hmm. in the famous Dover trials. Where's Dover? Where's Dover? Kitzmiller versus Dover Area School District okay. was the first direct challenge brought in the United States federal courts testing public school curriculum Dover, decided 2005. Oh, 2005. Wow. This was in... Where's Dover? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. So Dover, Pennsylvania, 2005, there was a court case. And by the way, the judge of that case made it to the 100 influential people in Time Magazine of the Year or something like really? that. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Basically, the idea was that, that there were certain people who were pushing creationism, which is a form of teaching. They call it intelligent design, right? Well, they're the, different the, forms. Right. So, so intelligent design is a very clever way of saying we don't accept evolution, Mm -hmm. Right. We're talking about, I think, like evangelical, a particular sect of evangelical Christianity who has an issue with science. And they come up with very clever ways of saying, let's teach. There are lots of people from lots of religions that no, have a problem course. with science. And of I've course. met plenty of evangelical Christians who have no, no problem with evolution. That's why I said evolution. a very particular sect of. Yeah. Right. It was very specific. There's a particular sect of. And they are, let's just say, they are very literal readers of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Bible says six days, it was six days. And they do their math however they do their math. It couldn't happen the way science as it happens. Teach the controversy, they say. Now, they're very clever. And mm -hmm. I spent many hours of several We're years open of We're open-minded. Teach the controversy. Right. It's intelligent design. It sounds like it's branded right. as a scientific and there's, theory. There's, there's people who, who teach this stuff. Like a very famous one is Professor Michael Behe who wrote Darwin's Black Box, and he talks about a very particular thing he calls Where it something. Where is he a professor? I don't know. And he, he talks about the flagellum, a particular mechanism. The, uh, the, the flagellum is the propulsion of a particular bacteria, mm -hmm. which works in a way. He basically has an argument which is called the argument from personal incredulity, which goes as follows. I can't imagine how there is a natural explanation for this thing evolving based on Darwin's rules of la la la. Therefore, it can't be. You find uh -huh. the flaw in that argument. Why on earth do I care about your personal credulity? The beautiful thing about that court case is that he said, like, how do you explain, I don't know, the immune system? Okay. Okay. One of the famous arguments about this is they say, like, what good is half an eye? And he talks yeah. about this here. He talks about this in The Blind Watchmaker. He talks about this in Shattering the Rainbow. I You're think talking about Dawkins. Richard Dawkins talking right. about it. In it's his very books. simple. It didn't, there is no intent to reach the end point of an eye. Mm -hmm. There is simply a photosensitive cell, which is better than not having a photosensitive cell. Mm -hmm. There are many eyes which are so horribly designed. Like our eyes are backwards. We have a blind spot. Everything is re wired in an, an, an right? It's not intelligently designed. Mm -hmm. 
It's unintelligently designed. Mm -hmm. Look at the vagus nerve. Or the fact that we hiccup. I mean, that's all has to do with your inner fish. Mm. So the thing about the inner fish, Neil Shubin actually talks about these things, but let's just finish the Dover case. So this lawyer, they came prepared. To Michael be his credit, he's one of the few people who actually showed up. Oh, wow. The people who actually said, right, he came. Okay, he actually put his mouth The lawyer came and he uh, said, here's a book with scientific literature with a plausible explanation for the evolution of the immune system, and he drops down the book, and another book, and they pile up books, and he's sitting there in the testimony chair. Hmm. And he goes, well, that's not proof to me. Sounds like you have an agenda. You don't say. Hmm. Personal incredulity. So that's that, that being said, the court ruled that you can't push creation science or in intelligent design as an alternative to science. It's not a scientific theory. Mm -hmm. by no stretch of the amount. It makes no predictions. There's no scientific controversy to be taught in a science class. Correct. No, there's no, there, there is, this isn't an alternative. It is a religious agenda, and they proved it. And one of the things that where they used Tiktaalik is that they showed science makes predictions which can falsify or verify it. And here is one. Hmm. And that's what they did. And Tiktaalik was the example. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's so amazing. So they used Tiktaalik. Now, a beautiful thing, they brought Tiktaalik mm -hmm. into, Neil Shubin says he brought it into his five-year-old son's classroom, mm -hmm. and the kids were asked, so what is this? And some were saying it's a fish, mm -hmm. and some were saying it's not, because it has feet. And they, mm. they were talking over the various features of Tiktaalik, so it's really cool, where kids are saying, what is it? It's a transitional form. That's a, it's a great experiment to give kids, to ask it's them to great. think about it's that. It's really great. So that's where you have the idea of fossils and the theory of evolution and geology coming together to become part of a, an explanation for life on Earth. Now, I have a personal story about your inner fish. Sure. And it's that when I was doing my neuroanatomy class, mm -hmm. the whole class started out with teaching us fish anatomy. Ew. Because if you want to understand human anatomy and in particular, the anatomy of our nervous system, it makes a great deal of sense to start with an early vertebrate, right. a fish. Mm -hmm. And so we started off talking about the simplified system of a fish before you get into all the complications of a human. Okay, that's it. Well, it's interesting because you know, we think of the, the brain as kind of the crowning achievement of human evolution. Right. And I'm, I'm not objecting, but then to access the brain, to begin your discussion of brain anatomy right. with a fish, a lower life form, I think touches on why evolution is seen as such a threat to humanity. It's not that, it's not just that this violates how I happen to read this verse in the Bible at this particular time. People mm -hmm. are smart enough to know that they can reinterpret things. It takes a deeply stubborn person to say that my read of this verse is so correct that I refuse to interpret it in face of evidence. Okay, so, so, but the really difficult thing about evolution mm -hmm. for somebody who's committed to a biblical worldview seems to be that this pulls humans down and threatens our dignity by showing us kind of the dirty underside of where we came from. So there's, I mean, there's a beautiful Midrash which says... I was thinking the same midrash. Yeah, yeah, the one that says like there's a there's a dump, right? And the king has a palace built yep. over the mm -hmm. dump, and mm -hmm. like don't you mention what's underneath this palace, right? Right? There's a lot of. Uh, you know what city is built that way? Which one? Washington D.C. Of course, that explains a lot. Of course, now there's garbage on the top too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, so so so, the, so, so let's get into how how religious thinkers responded to the perceived threat of evolutionary well, well, theory. We need to, to really can understand the threat. And, and the threat begins with when science really, an ob observation of nature really started threatening religious dogma. And in this case, I'm speaking about Galileo, of course, right? Because Galileo's and, and Copernicus threatened the geocentric view of the world, which assumed that the earth is the center of everything and the sun and the moon circle it. This is what the assumption was. I mean, all this sounds so totally crazy to Jews because yes. you look at the Talmud and it's filled with observations of the natural world. So how on earth would observations it's of the also, natural it's world It's also full of very be... mistaken ones, but that's fine. Okay, that's fine, but, that's many of them, but many of them are very accurate. Right. And observations can always be mistaken. That's part of doing science. So, okay, you design a better experiment. There, there's a great... And then Galileo and Copernicus, what they're objecting to isn't really a biblical worldview. What they're objecting to is something that's coming from the ancient Greeks, from Aristotle and from, uh, from uh, Ptolemy. But that happened to be adopted as church dogma because Aristotle became such a big deal That's for the development platitude. of Christianity. That's all platitude. Okay, okay, okay. But the quote, there's a beautiful you quote. You interrupt my rant with a pun like that. I have no comeback. But I will say that St Stephen Jay Gould, who actually fits into, I'll tell a personal story, but Stephen Jay Gould is a known paleontologist. He studied a certain kind of snail or something, speaking of art. Wait, he's a artifact. paleontologist? I yeah, thought he's a he was, paleontologist. I thought he was an evolutionary biologist. I think he was a paleontologist. Fact he was check? an evolutionary biologist, but I think his, his, he, was an, he was a paleontologist as well. Huh. American paleontologist. Evolutionary so. biologist and historian of science. Okay. Okay. So it says paleontologist as well? Yeah, yeah. That's the first thing it says. Yeah, so because he wrote about snails, but he also has some very important textbooks about evolutionary. He, he, he came up with a theory of punctuated evolution, and him and Dawkins had back and forth about what does he mean punctuated. It's relatively punctuated. Punctuated evolution is a theory in which for the majority in geologic time, which means millions of years are, can, is a very short period of time for geology. You have periods of stability and, and then, then there's periods short of, periods of, of intense change. change, which can have to do with radiation or intense pressure for survival. Or now, just a major shift in the environment. Yes. And what Dawkins points out is that that is all relatively speaking. It's happening over millions of years, but not tens of millions of years. So it's relatively speaking punctuated evolution. But that is important because some people who argue against evolution, it's usually for religious purposes, say is that if you look at the rate of evolution and in which things evolve mm -hmm. and you project backwards, there isn't enough time in the age of the planet, which is about 4 billion years, to account for the diversity that you have. Right. Well, if you measure the rate of evolution based purely on our relatively stable environment today, exactly. and it's not going to work. It's very easy to, to disprove that mm -hmm. uh, because, for example, the, you take a creature which has a very fast rate of accelerated change, for example, oh. bacteria, mm -hmm. and you take antibiotics. Yeah. And if you're not consistent with the antibiotics, then the, the bacteria replicate so fast, that multiply so fast, that they will, there will be a variation which is immune to that antibacteria, and then you're, you're going to die. See, the positive take on this is that you too can participate in evolution. And not just by dying, you too can strengthen bacteria by not quite killing it. 
What does not kill me makes me stronger. Yes, but for example, if you keep on trying to use the same antibiotics on bacteria from 20 years ago, it's going to kill you because they've evolved. Well, look at the, the level of uh, antibiotic dosages when antibiotics were first produced. You right. needed nothing. <laughs> bacteria have caught up right, with us. But even fruit flies who multiply really quickly, here's the thing. You'll get mutations which are self-defeating. So for example, under certain conditions, you'll be able to produce mm -hmm, fruit mm -hmm. flies which grow feet from their heads, but they're not going to last in nature. Yeah. So they're going to die. Nature's natural selection just means that the, the nature is not going to allow them to survive because they're not suited for survival. But you can create an artificial environment in which to allow them to yeah, survive. What it is to be suited to, for survival always depends on, on the mating environment. And environment. Right. If you if you evolve too quickly, then you're not going to have who to mate with. You're too. You have to stay within a particular range of mutation, oh, which enables you to survive. Mm -hmm. There's a lot. I've been reading a lot about this. I was talking with a professor of Barilan many years ago. He had just had a major breakthrough in his cancer research. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, so you know, it sounds like there are really good things going on in cancer research today. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, a few more decades and God willing, we will have basically figured out how to deal with cancer. Okay. I said, okay, and then what after that? And he said, bacterial infection. That was his take on it. We're in an arms race with bacteria yes, and with an viruses. And, and indeed in... In one of his books, uh, Dawkins talks about an arms race. Yeah. Right? Like, it's like you see, it's so... And they don't even have arms. He's like, oh, my God. It, it's so beautiful how everything was perfectly designed. You know, they, the cheetah was designed for running, and the gazelle was designed for that, and this is designed for camouflage. But it's like, no, it's an arms race. Yeah. I'm trying not to get eaten and becoming more and more efficient at not getting eaten. He takes that a whole different direction. He says, what sort of sadistic god tries, like, whose side are you on, the gazelle or the cheetah? <laughs> Who are you cheering on? Right? It's such a, he's really funny. So the quote by Stephen Jay Gould is, As Copernicus and Galileo dethroned the earth from the center of the universe, Darwin removed humanity from the center of nature. And so in that sense, while perhaps for contemporary Judaism in the Renaissance, say, the idea of a sun in the center of the universe was not threatening, but dethroning humanity from their high horse is. And so the real threat is saying, you're not such hot stuff. You're just like everybody else. You come from the fish. You come from the from apes. It's interpreted as an assault on human dignity. So there's an assault on human dignity is probably the, the hardest blow because there's also, there's also the idea behind it saying the age of the universe, which we're not going to get into now. The assumption is that that's not an issue. Um, and there's also, how do you reconcile that with humanity was created in the sixth day and these creatures then, and this sort of messes up the order of operations, right? Fish on the fifth day, but birds in the... It's, it's just, it doesn't mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. doesn't work. There are several different Jewish thinkers who try to, let's say, tackle this. At this point, it already becomes a threat. It's no longer like, how does this fit into a nice little view of the flood and so on? Like, this is a little more complex. So you have... Uh, because there's a more developed theory now, right. so now which would attack more... Right. Now there's, now there's a robust theory, uh, which actually poses some sort of theological threat. So who's dealing with this theological threat? We have the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This is very recent now. Very, very, very recent. He had many, many writings on this, and the Jewish Hasidic sect of Chabad still largely adhere to this. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had interesting conversations with some schools, like a Montessori school, about this, because they have a very particular lesson which deals with the history of life and they have an interesting gray area way of dealing with it huh. anyway to the point is that he pointed out that listen god can do anything right mm -hmm. god can make the world look as if 
Mm-hmm. and like planted all the fossils there, made the world look as if it went through all of that stuff, but it was really ready-made 6,000 years ago or whatever. We're this living in a, a simulation. I can understand where he's coming from. I don't want to give this approach a lot of credit here. Right, right. But, but, I, uh, but it does fit with Chabad thinking in a broad sense mm-hmm. where Chabad will very frequently talk about the levels of illusion within which we live. So it's like, we live as if matter really exists. We live as if uh, causality occurs as we think it occurs. This is sounding like a conversation with the Merovingian. No, that's exactly the point, that Chabad's view of things is very much matrices within matrices within matrices. and That's why they're called Neo-Hasidus. What? Neo. Have you seen (laughs) the Matrix? Come on, man. Okay, that was good. That was yeah, good. that was good. That was good. That, that was, was good. good. That was good. Right. Thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you. But I'm just pointing out that that this take by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which I do not like at all, at least fits within a whole framework. And I can see how within that framework, it would be kind of less ad hoc. Okay. I'll tell you why I don't like it. Okay. First of all, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> okay. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a scene, not in the movie, but has a scene where you have this civilization which custom makes planets to order. And after Earth was destroyed to make a way for an intergalactic highway system, which is the beginning of the book, mm. the first book, they're designing a new one and you see the scene where they're planting in the fossils. Ah, very right? nice. So it's like, really? <laughs> Come on. Like, who, who are you kidding? Like, what, what would, why? Right? What, just to test you into believing? Uh, come on. I just don't buy it. There needs to be a, a, a solution which enables you to maintain your faculties of truth. And if you are saying that the world is fooling you in such a deep fundamental level which contradicts your ability to ask further questions, you will never be able to uncover truth. Yeah, that's the dark side of looking at layers of reality as layers of illusion. It's not just that these are interfaces with which you can interface, it's that, no, you are actually being deceived. Right. So it, it, makes, it, it, it kind it, of it crosses... It turns it into deception. Yeah. And that means it's disingenuous. And so that's why I have an issue with that. So There's a difference between having a graphic user interface with which I can easily interact on my computer right. and having an interface on my computer which obscures my relationship to the machine code so in a way so that PC, I push that? something and then something else occurs. Yes. but So Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch from Germany uh, says as follows in The Educational Value of Judaism, Collected Writings. Mm-hmm. It is, and quote, It is true, of course, that most natural scientists today are satisfied to stop at the point where they have surmised some sort of unity at the foundation of all nature. They do not attempt to proceed upward from there to the one, sole creator and composer of that unity. They do not even suspect that, with every step they take toward the discovery of unity in nature, they add another step to the universal throne of the one, sole God. Now, there's more that he's said. I just want to uh, mention that idea is that he's basically saying that even unintentionally, Mm -hmm. science is reaching to a point where everything is converging to a unity. Mm -hmm. And he he later on says that while he's not sold yet on this theory of evolution, I think he wrote this, I mean, the theory was published in 1850, right? He said this shortly after. So he wasn't convinced yet. The the evidence hasn't accumulated enough yet at the time for him. that's, That's fine. 
right? But he said, should it be proven to be true, it is a greater view of life in that it shows that instead of God needing to manipulate things and pull the strings, he's saying this in other yeah, words, of course, oh. not in those words, I'm mm -hmm. paraphrasing, mm -hmm. but there is a simplicity and elegance in just having one basic set of rules and letting them work themselves out. Hmm. It's much nicer. You don't need to control and tinker with things. Hmm. You just need to let them work themselves out with a basic set of rules. Creation has integrity. Yes. And therefore, this is the Maimonidean, Rambam, which is medieval. One of his issues as a rationalist mm -hmm. right, with miracles is that miracles actually are the opposite of increasing God's grandeur because they basically say God couldn't figure out a way to make it work properly and he had to add a patch job on it to make it work. They're ad hoc. They're violations. Right. They're violations of nature. And so there needs to be a necessity, a utility for it to work. And therefore you have these midrashic sayings such as God had to make an agreement with creation in advance to say you shall violate the laws of creation to enable this to happen as if it's part of nature. Right. Right. That's his view. The sea didn't want to split. Yeah, the seasons want to split. <laughs> Listen, but you Listen, know. I will give you a lot of fish food. You know, there's a very funny cartoon where you see the Israelites walking through the sea, mm -hmm. and you see on one side of the sea, you see a fish, and the other side, a shark, and it says, and Bob had a few minutes of uh, respite <laughs> from the... Yeah. It's, it sounds like a Gary Larson, but I think it's something else. So you have these two different views that are trying to see how does the corpus of scientific knowledge and evidence enhance our ability to appreciate, to appreciate the meaning behind our religion, right? So you have that, or, or understanding God, understanding the biblical text, understanding Tanakh. So you have that kind of concept. And here is where, where I think it's a great opportunity to talk about Rabbi Sachs. Yes. One of the things that I wanted to, to bring out in this episode in yeah. memory and honor of Rav Sachs mm -hmm. is his dialogue, which occurred over some years, some in public, some in private, mm -hmm. with Richard Dawkins. Professor Richard Dawkins, the great evolutionary biologist. Yes. And I have some quotes here that I, I wanted to, to read, and maybe we could unpack them a little bit. So this is a quote from a debate that he had on the BBC with mm -hmm. Richard Dawkins. Where I think I disagree with Richard is that Richard sees religion and science inevitably in conflict. And I see them as two different sorts of things altogether. Uh, science can tell us about the origin of life, religion tells us about the purpose of life. Science explains the world that is, religion summons us to the world that ought to be. But I do nonetheless value science because, as Richard says, always follow the evidence. I think this is a relatable way to talk about things right. with, a, with, a general with, crowd. With, with a general audience, right? Yes. Because if you have a little philosophical sophistication such that you've thought about these things, mm -hmm. you might be familiar, if not with the history, at least with the idea from Hume that is doesn't imply ought, that facts and values are different sorts of things. So this is something that Rav Sachs talks about a good deal in that debate and also in other places. The first lesson any philosophy student ever learns is facts are one thing, values are another. When all the facts are in, the question of values still remains. And we will never get that from, from science, which is brilliant at establishing facts, but cannot ordain values. And therefore, for that, we have to look ultimately, I think, at the ultimate itself, God himself, or at the very least, if you don't believe, 
at least accept the wisdom that has been honed and refined through three and a half thousand years and has brought freedom, dignity and hope to the world. The science is going to give us facts, science is going to investigate the facts, but science cannot tell us the values, and this is a live debate in philosophy of science today, can science even justify its own methods? Because there are values that are part of the method. Is this a Godelian question? Maybe on some level, but I don't want to go there. The idea is that science is going to work on facts and religion is going to work on values. That makes it very relatable to people who feel that conflict in their everyday life. These are the facts. This is not what I want things to be. I want to try for something else. Maybe I feel that it's impossible to get there. It neutralizes the threat, but when you dig deeper, it's insufficient. It's not satisfactory. It's not properly representing how we're looking at Torah's relationship to science. I think that it's sort of saying the two are two different things, which aren't contradictory. They're just two different things. Yeah, this is also my, my discomfort with this quote. Because there's a certain level of questions mm -hmm. which make it, you, it's no longer enough. Like, I'm not, we're not going right now into archaeology and history and philology and comparative analysis and all that stuff. But once you go down that line with the particular methodologies with which you reach the conclusions you reach, it's going to challenge the very corpus of, of knowledge you're using to appreciate at least Torah, Jewish... You're saying level. if you apply the scientific method along the lines of you know, German scholarship starting in the 19th century yes. to the, the Bible. The Wissenschaft, yes. Right. Then you're going to run into a deconstruction of religion itself right. through science. In other words, you're going the, the very basis of how what I remember Rabbi Sachs challenged Dawkins is that Dawkins was saying, well, if, for example, this is his old one, his favorite, mm -hmm. if the Bible is only meant to be as a metaphor, then a metaphor for what? What's the metaphor in the story of the binding of Isaac, Akedat Yitzchak? What he pointed out to him is that you're reading it in a very literary sense, an American way, in a... How, would, how did you put it? Reading the binding of Isaac as a metaphor is, is very important in a Christological read of the Bible. And, because okay. it's kind of a... It's seen as foreshadowing the eventual... Sacrifice oh, in of, that sense, I yeah. just meant in terms of literary reading is a non-Jewish way of reading it. But the, like, in other words, yeah. we have Torah Shabal Peh, right? We have the oral tradition. We have all those interrelationships and analysis, which help us have a more robust view of things. And Dawkins is coming along and, and saying, and my point "Tell was, me what this is a symbol for," right. and we're saying we don't read it symbolically. Exactly, the idea of symbol is not; it's not really a Jewish thing. Yeah which is a whole other conversation, which I hope to get into when we talk about the menorah. One day, we'll get there. One day. Yes. But the point is that if you deconstruct the authority of those sources, which say, look at it this way, mm -hmm. then you're left with the textual analysis. Right. And it feels very cold. Now, that's one side. The other side of it is that you can use essentially a religious framework in order to deconstruct facts. And then where does that take you? Well... We see it today with the ideology of social justice, attacking basic ideas in biology, for example, about sex. Oh, but you're, that's not religious. I mean, that's religious-like. It's dogmatic. Yes. But that's the point. You take a dogma, whatever it is, an ideology with whatever values it has, and based on those values, it will come along and it will look at facts that don't align with those values, and it will say, hold on, now I'm going to show you your hidden agenda behind those facts, 
because now I can say the values that generated those facts, that got you to those facts, are not in line with my values, my correct values, and therefore I can object to the facts that you had. So you can deconstruct from either end. It's not necessarily... It. You can deconstruct religion or you can deconstruct science. I exactly. That's the point you're yeah. making. I got it. Yeah. Okay. The harmony that Rob Sachs is envisioning isn't necessarily so, and we're actually seeing that in both directions today. Does Rabbi Sachs deal with these issues elsewhere in a way that's more, I guess, satisfactory about the idea of how the two, science and religion, work together not just are two different things which work alongside each other? I think it's a great question to ask. We can be confident that he did think about those issues. I'm not familiar enough with his writing. It'd be great if listeners got in touch with us and gave us some sources. Yeah, that you know, would be maybe, really nice. Maybe we could do Because it seems like epilogue. this is something he would agree with. So, I mean, we, we have this assumption. I mean, we're saying us, right? You and I, where, where we don't seem to see there's any issue with all this. Right? It seems to work seamlessly in some kind of way, but that's not taken for granted. That's not necessarily the way many people view it, but we like, I can read Dawkins. I read The God Delusion and was like, this is entertaining, and I was actually mm -hmm. kind of kind of let down at the end where I thought he would take it further, and he's like, that's it, that's all you got? My rabbi does a better job with atheism than you do. Yeah, I'm telling <laughs> <laughs> so where are we? You had another quote. I wanted to say that in terms of uh, the this divide that Rav Sachs paints in that quote, I I kind of see it in terms of Shteveshuyot, which... Two different dominions. Two... There, there are two different dominions. I mean, I'm speaking a little bit metaphorically here. Yes. The way that I kind of reconcile that is, I, I think, the way that Maimonides does it, which is simply that he sees science as an integral part of Torah. You cannot be Mekayim Torah. You cannot actually live a life of Torah mm -hmm. if you are not committed to and educating yourself in science. And the, the real issue with which he himself struggled with in dealing with Aristotelian philosophy mm -hmm. is that there are certain conclusions when you take that methodology and logic to its furthest extent which will contradict some basal assumptions about how about Judaism, for example, okay? So, for example, in his 13 Principles of Faith, the, mm -hmm. the, the one which we don't really care for much today, which is his fourth principle, which is that the universe was brought into existence at a certain point. It didn't, right, ex nihilo, it didn't exist forever ongoingly as, in, as Aristotelian logic presumed it always existed. Well, there's also a problem with that within Aristotle's framework because Aristotle holds okay. that there are no actual infinities. And mm -hmm. he also says that the universe always existed. But that means that you would have had to have actually traversed an infinity in order to get to any particular point in time. And so it's a contradiction within Aristotle. It sounds like Zeno's paradox. <laughs> uh, it's, it's related to Zeno's paradox. Uh, I don't want to get xenophobic here, but I just wanted to stay on point. Okay. Is that the, the idea is that um, he said in the More Nevuchim, in the Guide for the Perplexed, I am convinced that he is wrong. However, if I were forced to accept this as correct based on the evidence, I would mm -hmm. find a way to reinterpret the Torah to make it work. As Rav Sachs said in the quote that we just played before. But I do nonetheless value science because, as Richard says, always follow the evidence. 
that which brings up a very interesting conversation. That's so wait a, a great minute. principle. If you have to keep on reinterpreting the Torah to make it work, then at what point do you say, well, it doesn't work, so what's my basis for accepting it? Well, maybe the Torah wasn't supposed to be a scientific theory in the first place. Correct. And so therefore the question is, these parts which we thought, mm -hmm. that at least this part of the Torah is, it's not a science textbook, but it's referring to actual things. Mm -hmm. And then you say like, it doesn't have to be. I thought it has to be, but I was wrong. And we have many examples of that. I mean, today in modern, in modern day, once you find comparisons to other ancient Near Eastern texts, you'll say like, hey, this is speaking in a way that people at that time would understand. What is it actually saying? It's speaking in context to other things in a language people will understand. Mm -hmm. And it's recontextualizing, let's say, the concept of a story of a flood, which shows up in many other cultures, mm -hmm. right? Not to say that the flood didn't necessarily happen. The question is, when you see it in context of other stories, it's saying something different than what you thought it's saying. Mm -hmm. And you have to recontextualize it. Right. Right. This comes up with taxon taxonomic questions too. Like say you have a pig today, which actually does chew its cud, right? Is that pig now kosher? So it's an interesting question. Right. So right. The, Cause it's, it's cause referring to a, a very particular window in time in which those commandments were given and what was available and known in the region at the time. Right. And it's very local and people mistake that as saying, oh, there's nothing else in the world that has the exception to the rule. Like, no, there are, it's just, they're not local. Split hooves and choose its cut. Okay. Okay, there's a rule, and then there's exceptions to the rule which are listed. The assumption is everything else fits with the rule, except barring these exceptions, which is why they need to be named. Okay. So there are no other exceptions. Oh, there, there are. I, I never took that as if it was supposed to be a comprehensive list be, of exceptions. You'll be surprised that certain uh, Jewish organizations which try to prove the validity of the Torah will say, here you see the ultimate knowledge and truth of the Torah is that it says that and it's absolutely true. And sometimes you find that it's not. There's a comprehensive list of exceptions. Oh, gosh. Yes, because there's the rule and then there's the exceptions. Like, well, why, why would or, they for example, place that a fish, like a the... fish with fins and scales, right? So the assumption is any fish that has scales also has fins, but if it has fins, it doesn't necessarily have scales. Right, that's, a, that's a, a sort of a popular knowledge, but that's not true. But why Why would you even make that assumption? Why would you? Well, I don't know why they come up with that, but evolutionarily speaking, scales evolved after fins. And so if a creature has scales, they will also have fins, but not vice versa, because fins came before scales. I don't know. There's weird stuff. Okay. Anyway, the point is that there's th the th many things need to be understood in a very locally and contextually. So that Rambam's rule. Okay? okay, so here, let me give you another quote. Go. I think we agree in the, on the integrity of science, on the power that it has given us, and the immense dignity that it represents. Um, Richard accepts that as a fact. I accept that as what the Bible means when it says God made us in his image. But nonetheless, we both cherish science as one of the great human achievements. And it is my belief that we will always need a sense of that which is beyond us in order, A, to never lose sense, sight of human dignity. So this is also from the BBC debate. What I relate to in this quote is his celebration of science. Yes, celebration of science, that's good. What I would push on a little bit is the idea that science doesn't give us a sense of human dignity. 
one of the things that Jordan Peterson does famously when debating people such as Sam Harris, and he does mention Richard Dawkins, is that he says, these people want to completely discard, barring other than for cultural reference, discard religion altogether. All of these thinkers are assuming that if you discard the religion altogether, mm -hmm. you will still remain with the morality mm -hmm. which you have as a result of the Judeo-Christian mm -hmm. religions. And he's saying that's not true. If bereft of that, mm -hmm. take other cultures which have no connection to the Bible around the world, and mm -hmm. they'll eat you alive. Right. One of the challenges, for example, we're, we're in Kislev, we're approaching Hanukkah, mm -hmm. Hellenism is seen as a culture clash, which is in itself a novel concept in Jewish history. There was never a cultural clash between Judaism or the Judea Jews or the Israelites and another culture. There wasn't any culture which threatened us culturally. There right. was a... Babylonia a, didn't threaten us culturally. Well, yeah, we, Persia we, was beautiful and we, sophisticated, we didn't have, but didn't threaten us. We didn't us. really find anything enticing about Zoroastrianism. Mm -hmm. Right? It just was who they were, and they tried to force us to... We might have picked up some good ideas from them. Yeah, we, we, finished, we picked up good ideas from the Babylonians, too. Hellenism was considered to be a cultural challenge because of the overlap with values that are apparently innate to some extent in Judaism, and I guess were either replaced or synthesized with ideas which came from Greece and Hellenism. And so Jews were saying, like, I don't need this Judaism stuff. Look at them. They're much more successful. There's a beautiful analogy in evolution, right? If you have two organisms that are adapted to their environments, that, that need things that are very different, then they aren't going to compete with each other. Right. Whereas if you have two organisms that have similar values for their lives, they have similar needs, then they're going to compete. Their niches are close enough that, wait, hold on, you want to eat that? I want to eat that too. Right? You're threatening my food supply, and now you've got a real problem between, between them. So it's not a conflict between us and, the, and Hellenism because we're so different. It's conflict because we're so similar. Uh, that's a nice evolutionary metaphor. Yes, we're competing for the same thing, and that's a cultural clash. And that's why the biggest challenges to Judaism in terms of assimilation have to do with those values which we like as Jews, mm. and we are seeing them outside of Judaism much more represented, or so we think, right? Ah, it's like they're doing us better than us. Yes, because now we are actually in the exile, which we call Esav Edom. Esav is, the, is our brother as opposed to Yavan, who is a distant cousin. Yeah, it gets closer and closer to and home. the closer it is, the harder it is to tell the difference. Yeah. So speaking of which, a quote from a different source, Rav Sachs about Richard Dawkins Ooh. from an interview that he did with uh, some kind of Christian media network. How okay. similar we are. Okay. I mean, you, you've had your run-ins once or twice with the aforementioned Richard Dawkins. Oh, I love him. Let me be absolutely okay. straight. He is one of the most brilliant science writers of our time. Full stop, he is one of the most brilliant writers of our time. He has a wonderful sense of awe of nature and of the sublime. You know, I, I mean, I just, what's you know, he, he goes he around hitting religious people once in a while and we probably need to be hit. God sent Richard Dawkins for a reason, because we are too complacent, 
we believe six impossible things before <laughs> breakfast, we're too credulous, and we accept too much as the will of God, which we shouldn't accept. So, you know, just as Richard Dawkins sees religious people as part of the wonderful Darwinian plan of random genetic mutations, so I see random genetic mutations like Richard Dawkins as part of the divine plan. We each make space for the other in our universe, but he's a great man. That's funny. We each make space for the other in our universe, but he's a great man. Across the gap of war, we have a great general, as Churchill said about the desert fox. This is beautiful. It's a beautiful way. You know, like Rev. Cook said that, and it's, it's another aspect of this, is that we owe thanks to atheism for teaching us that there is no God in the sense of wh whatever it is that we thought God is, it's definitely not that. And we definitely need to be spanked around a little bit to recognize that. Um, and so we need that. We, we can't hide in our cocoon. There is grandeur in this view of Torah. That is a beautiful conclusion. We're going to send you off now with one last wonderful quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zichron Olivracha. May his memory be a blessing to the Jewish people and to all people. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can support us on patreon.com slash artifact podcast. You can find us on all social media platforms. Please do subscribe, share it with everybody you know, and leave us a five-star rating and a positive review wherever you listen to podcasts. And most of all, thank you for listening. I really tried to summarize the way I understand monotheism, which is not one God, one truth, one way. The miracle of monotheism is unity in heaven creates diversity on earth. And that's how I understand Judaism. say religion generally they're speaking about Christianity like that's their point of reference from which they extrapolate to other religions right it's well, very Sam clear. Harris would also attack he, Islam primarily yes he does but he's studied Islam extensively Richard Dawkins primarily focuses on on religion on Christianity yeah. and the judeo-christian religions I guess he's Jew Judaism he's focusing on Christianity even if he doesn't realize it yeah he is and that's pretty much and I will say here one more thing about Richard Dawkins mm -hmm. is that Richard Dawkins had a series of videos, you can look for them on, on, on YouTube, where he goes and he speaks to various religious people around the United Kingdom, and he tries to speak to them about religion, and these people are all coming across as fundamentalists, Christian, Jews, Muslim, right? And I was wondering, he's speaking to some rabbi who barely even has, can barely speak English. Rabbi Sachs is right there, the chief rabbi of England, and you couldn't think of speaking to him? Yeah. They didn't even come, like, nothing? Yeah. I was just I was so curious. Yeah. Like, that's the first person you should go to. Well, it's clearly because he has an agenda. He's looking for people who are going to look right. like he's, idiots. He's very stubborn, and eventually it happened. Hmm. Now, what I think that Jordan Peterson represents is the evolution, if, it, if you will, of ideas, hmm. of how... The search for meaning, which is really a religious idea, mm -hmm. right, you can say, okay, more or less. In other words, these people who are religious are looking for meaning, and and once they find that science seems to give an explanation, so they're leaving it behind, and they're all of that. It's a broader conversation. Okay, I think that we've reached a level in which the universe produced Jordan Peterson. In other words, there needs to be a response to this issue. 
to this evolution. These ideas like religion is under attack, mm -hmm. right? And many in an evolutionary sense fall out of the race. Mm -hmm. But those which are able to absorb and, ad and adapt mm. have emerged into something stronger. There, there was a niche that was opened in our this is, evolutionary this is landscape. Evolution, this is an evolutionary, religious, evolutionary is. response to the challenge of evolution. I hear what you're saying. To religion. Yeah, so yeah. It's a nice idea. Yeah. We have now a Jordan Peterson. Now, Jordan Peterson, first of all, is able to say, so yeah, I've listened to Sam Harris, I've listened to uh, Christopher Hitchens, I've listened to Richard Dawkins, and they all, you know, they all miss the point. The fact that you can have somebody who can say that means we've reached a point where these ideas are ripe for that kind of discussion. Okay. It's no longer so challenging. We've sort of gotten back up. You know, there was round one, round two, round three. We're down, but there's a few more rounds to go. We're back up. We're in the game again. Now we're having a conversation. Okay, but I don't get what now, the Now, Jordan is. Peterson, yeah. you know, there is something to say about all of these ideas, the evolution of ideas, and where science is no longer challenging. It's like the issues that Richard Dawkins brings up are a non-issue to Jordan Peterson. Our basal assumptions are assumptions which make these things non-issues. Uh, I thought you were going to point out that Jordan Peterson, in contrast with many people before him, has a read of humanity that brings together myths and the Bible and science by putting everything within an evolutionary framework. He mm -hmm. sees myths as a part of human adaptation, right? So myths and the Bible and these ideas aren't what Dawkins phrase uh, like mind viruses. Hmm. Rather, they're part of adaptation to a social landscape in a certain you know, environmental context. And, and that allows him a very beautiful and elegant integration. Where do you rate the review? On Patreon? Uh, wherever you have an option to do it. It's, yes. it, could be, uh, it could be on Patreon, it could be on Facebook, it could be most importantly probably on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to our podcast on any way you listen to podcasts. Yes. All right, thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed. End video, end video. Skadoosh. That was fun.